Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Art Monthly Talk Show. My name is Alexandra Hull, and I'm very excited to be here tonight, as it's my first time hosting the programme. In tonight's episode, we'll be discussing three articles from our current issue of the Art Monthly magazine, which is our May issue. If you haven't had the opportunity to get yourself a copy of this month's issue, and hopefully our conversations tonight will encourage you to do so, you can purchase one through our website, www.artmonthly.co.uk forward slash buy. We're also running a special subscription offer at the moment, which is closing at midnight tonight. With any individual print subscription of the magazine, you can get free digital access to our entire online archive, dating back to 1976. Prices starting from £33. So, without further ado, let's get on with the show. I'd like to welcome and thank all of my guests who are joining me this evening. We have Adam Hines Green, an artist and winner of the 2018 Art Monthly and Film and Video Umbrella Michael O'Prey Prize for Writing. Adam will be discussing Richard Billingham's 2018 autobiographical film, Ray and Liz. Hi, Adam. Hi. We also have with us Adam Herdman, a poet and writer based in London. Adam will be talking about Workforce, a group exhibition interrogating contemporary labour issues at the Newbridge Project in Gateshead. Hi, Adam. <laughs> but first we have Lauren Holton, a curator and writer based in London. He'll be discussing her interview with Swedish artist Petra Bauer and Molly Smith of Scott Pep, a sex worker-led charity that advocates for the safety, rights and health of everyone who sells sex in Scotland. Hi, Lauren. Hello. So, Lauren, your interview with Petra and Molly explores an array of urgent issues surrounding our understanding of sex work today and how it is situated within a broader, within a broader feminist movement. Perhaps we could start the discussion with an overview of the film Workers that Petra made in collaboration with Scott Pep. Um, sure. So... I think, as you've just said, Workers is a film um, that was a product of a long-term collaboration between the artist Petra Bauer and sex worker-led organisation Scott Pep. Um, and um, I suppose the um, the work situ aims to sort of move a conversation around sex work, um, around um, symbolism of um, or like positions of pro-sex and anti-prostitution positions that maybe stem more from the um, sex wars um, and move it towards a discussion of sex work um, in material terms. Um, and the way that that is um, achieved is through a process of bringing together um, a series of conversations that take place between anonymous members of Scott Pep, um, where they discuss... Um, sort of daily um, instances of um, difficulties um, that are caused by um, current um, sex worker legislation um, and criminalisation. Um, and these are weaved amongst um, filmed instances of those very participants um, sort of performing um, reproductive labour, so um, sewing, cleaning, making cups of tea, um, rep room preparation... Um, and I think by doing that, um, yeah, to move it from that sort of that that question around sort of symbolism, because mm. um, I think sex work is often spoken about how it's a product of um, sort of patriarchal symb right. symbolic of a sort of form of patriarchal yeah. power. Mm -hmm. So, how did the um, how did the film like come into being? What what kind of collaborative processes did um, Petra and Molly, or Petra, 
sort of put into place with Scott Pepp to produce this film? Um, so the collaboration um, was initiated by a collective um, who are based in Edinburgh um, and they got in touch with Petra Bauer um, with the offer for her to come over to Edinburgh um, and spend, I think it was two weeks of um, time in the area and they arranged for her to meet several organisations who are active um, within the area and I think there was no obligation for that research trip. I think right. Collective, um, from my understanding, from talking to Petra, that they were quite keen to work with her but then also an understanding of the way that she works is very collaborative so it needs to be a, um, a collaboration that she would obviously be invested in and right. interested in and then also reciprocally by the organisation um, that she would be working with. Um, and she said, um, I suppose Petra's work, she's um, interested in women's organising and women's struggle and what we can learn from how women organise. And she said that she met Scott Pep and there was a um, instant, um, I think, interest from her. She, I think, at the beginning didn't know much about sex worker um, organising, um, but was really interested in how um, Scott Pep were approaching that. Um, and I think from Scott Pep's point of view, they were very interested in... They, um, I think Molly says, uh, it's noted in the interview, that they get approached very frequently right. um, for people to... Um, from artists, mostly students, who want to work with Scott Pep. And obviously the subject of um, sex work is so um, sort of um, dense with things about power and gender relations. And But I think what was drawn... They were drawn to Petra because of the really long-term way that she works. And I think um, this sort of form of reciprocal learning and exchanging of knowledge from both parties is um, so crucial to the success of the film and is so evident within all the decisions that are made in terms of how to visualise um, mm. the sort of argument, for, for, I think, for the... Um, their call for decriminalisation and how they wish to sort of... Um, present that within a film. Um, so, for example, um, I think the tools of Petra's knowledge of fem um, filmmaking aesthetics is really, really incorporated um, into Scott Pep's tools of organising and political content. And I think I remember talking to Molly and she was saying that... Um, they watched together lots of films, so Derek Jarman's Blue mm. was one, and there was also another one, which I'm going to try and see in my notes. It was a film about a Paris commune, and it was 18 hours long, and I think there were um, people... The participants were not actors, but they played this 16-hour cosplay, and right. I think there were a lot of conversation around how to visually represent um, sort of sex work because obviously it's so embedded with issues around visibility um, and also stigmatisation and also in terms of um, voyeurism and objectification and yeah, I, that, all that, yeah all that is so evident within the work yes and I guess with visibility yeah it's a there's a, an, a requirement to protect the safety of the workers and I'm guessing this is why people were um, kept anonymous in the production of the film could you maybe talk a bit more about um, that, like anonymity, anonymity, but also um, how the title of the film "Workers" directly situates it within a sort of labour unionist movement, um, and positioning it as positioning sex work as just work, um, 
And could you maybe talk about that a little bit more? Sure. So in relation to your second point about um, the film workers situating um, sex work in um, sort of labour terms, I think I read the title workers as it being quite general in terms of a wider labour movement, mm-hmm. but then from talking to Petra and Molly, they were quite keen um, to situate um, sex work within sort of feminised labour mm-hmm. and more specifically um, reproductive labour. Um, and Petra cited Chantal Ackerman's Jean Dielman yeah. as a um, point of reference and she was really interested in the way that um, sex work is positioned within that film but also amongst so many other forms of feminised labour and yeah. they're not... Um, they're intertwined and they're not distinct from each other. And I think the reason for making that sort of ambiguity in terms of workers um, and perhaps if you were watching this film, not realising these people were sex workers because it's not necessarily made particularly evident in the... um, that you maybe would think that these people are, um, yeah... Are, perform- are actually workers of other mm. sort of forms yeah. of labour and not necessarily sex workers. So there's that ambiguity that happens. Um, and I think sort of historically they wanted to sort of situate that in sort of a more sort of wages for housework yeah. um, movement. Um, right, which is Sylvia Federici. Um, I think she, I read a, she talked about housework and said... Um, the most pervasive manipulation and the subtlest violence that capitalism has ever perpetrated against any section of the working class and sort of uses, um, talks about the idea of home as the site of resistance because um, under capitalism we've produced a housewife who is reproducing and creating the workforce, right? Yeah, so. I think the sort of the sort of Silvia Federici um, and also um, various writers in that field, they talk about how... Um, sort of that form of housework but not necessarily housework mm. it's cleaning but it's also child rearing um care and it's um preparing the worker um who is typically male for the workforce in order for them to be able to f- perform the work that they do but then the um gendered um work is typically provided for free mm. um yeah and also under that is the idea of like um women as in housewives or performing that kind of care, having sex with their husbands as well as a form of sex work within the home, right? Yeah, so, sex isn't distinguished yeah. from other forms of labour within the yeah. house. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Um, you also talk a lot about... Um, you talk about sort of um, collaging with the, within the film. Could you maybe describe that a little bit? Yeah, well, it's a very... I think visually it's very... Um, it's very simple, but I think what I feel like is so successful about it is that um, while the conversations discuss the various um, difficulties that these um, people face um, and the barriers that criminalisation places mm. um, in order for them to... Because um, essentially people who are sex... I think people who work as sex workers they are typically the most precarious and vulnerable mm-hmm. um people in society and the reason why people perform sex work is because um they need to make a livelihood yeah. in order to live and i think the argument is that um by criminalizing sex work and trying to stop sex work doesn't mean that those people will then stop having to make money yeah 
um, so ultimately giving access, yeah, and it's like the eradication of sex work means that there's so many other arenas that need to be addressed in order to mean that people don't have to perform sex work. Right, of course. Yeah. Um, so, so even though those conversations take place, um, I think those conversations are not presented as sensationalised. Mm. Um, there's not a kind of gruesome voyeurism, in, a, voy- a voyeuristic kind of... Um, view into abhorrent stories. Right. Um, there's like a certain, there's a definite, like gentle um, and caring um, nature. And I think that comes from the sort of collaging of this feminized labor and the care um, that is associated with that labor. And it means that the present, presentation of sex work isn't sort of done in, a, in that, yeah, yeah, in a problematic way. Yeah, no, I understand that because that would also. If it had been so, that would encourage people to maybe cast a moral gaze over the topic um, and, yeah, consider it a form of gendered violence, which is what you talked about earlier. Um, Maybe we could talk a little bit more. You kind of touched upon it just then about, um, yeah, so obviously if if sex work was criminalised, no, sex... (laughs) sex, The criminalization of sex work, or it's basically everything around sex work, right, that is being criminalized. But that the, there are wider issues at play here. So people who, some people who are participating in this kind of labor can't get access to any other job because of maybe they're immigrants or um, connected to drug issues. And yeah, maybe we could talk a bit more about the wider connection to other societal problems that inform this yeah kind of and i think argument. that's something that um i think in terms of creating that ambiguity around um the worker and also connecting sex work to mm. other forms of feminized labor it is to extend sex work is not something that is an isolated arena mm. it's so attached to yeah migrant rights um and within i think the reason why petra was so interested in working with scott pep is because they situate sex work in relation to a wider feminist movement Um, so the impossibility of separating sex work from so many different subjects Mm, yeah and also I guess uh, it's touched upon in the interview um, by criminalizing kind of um, sex work um, yeah it's putting these workers into a more precarious situation so they're forced to work maybe even um, solo as opposed to part of a group they don't have access to um, basic rights and healthcare. Um, is that something that's discussed within the film? That kind of like the the sort of danger dangers that occurs as a result of this kind of policing of labour. Yeah, definitely. I think there's um, it's what's cited in the interview, um, and I think um, there's like a moment in the film where um, a participant talks about. Um, I think they sort of. I think they posed the question of because they have a a, a, a a former client begin begin stalking her. Um, I think someone asked her, but can't you go to the police? And I think she kind of laughs at that suggestion. Mm. Um, and that's mainly around obviously if she goes um, to the police, she will be um, yeah presenting herself as a sex worker yeah. and ultimately probably arrested. But then also. Um, she talked about an instant previous uh, instance previously where she had been assaulted um, by a client and went and she 
talked about the reservation of going to the police, but then said, but obviously this person is quite dangerous and she didn't want mm. the same thing to happen to someone else. So she yeah. did go to the police. And I think around the stigmatisation around um, sex work has led to the police not taking her very seriously. Right. Um, so I think it's this, yeah, I think Molly articulates it so much more brilliantly <laughs> than I think I ever could. And um, also not what's not mentioned in the interview, and there was a specific reason for that, is that Molly Smith also co-wrote a really amazing book called Re Revolting Prostitutes with Juno Mack um, and talks in great detail um, about um, the politics around the sort of current legislation around sex work. Um, and the reason, the reasons why criminalisation is what is demanded by so many sex workers. So, um, I feel like I'd want to sort of draw people to that book yeah. um, in answer to those questions, rather than me um, as someone who I don't think I could speak with any authority yeah, to. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no, I'm definitely interested to read that book. It sounds amazing. Um, just finally, I just want to briefly touch upon um, in the interview they talk a little bit about how. Um, they occupied a building um, or... So this is the documentary. Yes. Yeah, so it, it's a French title. I'm not going to pronounce the French title because I will say it incorrectly, <laughs> but the English is The Prostitutes of Lyon Speak. Mm. And it's a documentary. It's a very famous documentary. It's not one I had um, come across previously, but it was um, from 1975. Um, so, yeah, I, I think um, there was um, a sort of... I think Molly talks about it, that there was a series of protests that happened in France, but obviously the sort of problem of being visible as a sex worker on the street and protesting, mm. that ultimately you made yourself very vulnerable to arrest. And there's also, I think, the question around a, a sort of politics is so... Um, so protest is so... Um, to, to protest, it's so crucial to be visible, but yeah. then the, pro the the problems of that as a sex worker, if you're not allowed to be visible, then how are you able to protest? And mm -hmm. I think something that came up in the conversation that didn't make it into the interview is that um, there's definitely not a um, representation of the racial demographic of Scott Pep. Right. Um, the vast, if not all, the vast amount of all the participants in the film are white. Um, and that was because... There were people that were coming to the um, meetings that were taking place between Petra and Scott Pep when they were um, exchanging knowledge and references and talking about how they would want to produce this film. But then when it came to filming, there were people that decided that they were not able to participate while people's identities are um, made anonymous. It, they were still that feeling that the risk was far too high. So there's also a certain privilege in relation to who is able to participate in protest and who isn't. But more specifically in relation to um, the prostitutes of, of Leon Speak, um, the church occupation was used as a strategy in order to protest without being visible. And I think she also talks about it as being um, a... Um, what's the word she uses? I think a very... Um, I think using the church and obviously with religion, that's a very... Um, it's like a prov quite provocative statement. That's exactly the word I'm looking for, <laughs> trying to grasp. Provocative. So, yeah. yeah, this time of being able to make this impact in the way that they wanted to without being visible. So they occupied the insides of the church and then nominated someone as a spokesperson who could then be outside the church in order to represent visually, but then still potentially having that same impact, but not being on the street and making themselves far more safer and um, so that's referenced as a sort of um as a point of reference within the film 
and then also um, the film takes place within a um, sort of a building that's used for labour rights organisation mm. in Scotland. But then ultimately, I think when it it became apparent that they were a group of sex workers organising around labour rights, they were ousted from that building. Right, OK. Um, and that also, I think Pat and Molly speaks about in the interview about the problems of being able to organise one because they don't have much money um, all their money is on donations and also people volunteer in their time but then also when they do get to organise I think quite frequently when people realise who they are they lose bookings for buildings right. very easily mm -hmm. so there's also several barriers that come yes. with that yeah I think that's all we have time for for now Lauren but thank you, thank you. Um, hopefully we'll be able to talk about it a bit more at the end <laughs> so um Adam, you reviewed Hello. Workforce, um, an exhibition curated by Lucas Ferguson, Ferguson Sharp mm -hmm. at the New Bridge Project Gateshead. The show forms part of a series that explores contemporary labour issues and featured work by Jarsdale Solutions Limited, Samuel Barry, Sean Hutchings and, and Anthony Morgan and Joseph Shaw. Mm -hmm. Would you be able to give us a quick sort of introductory overview to the exhibition so we can get a kind of feel of what it looked like how it was laid out uh, yeah of course as i say in the review it was quite a um text and concept heavy project mm. um which was fantastic in so many ways um it did mean that when you walked into the gallery space there were um three main areas of, of experience there one of which was a a fence in the most simple way that I could possibly be <laughs> interpreted, there was a sort of wooden picket fence made that was on an ongoing construction project by um, Sean and Samuel, Sean Hutchings, Samuel Barry, um, which they would durationally, they would come into the gallery and spend certain numbers of hours constructing and painting uh, this fence. And on the wall behind them was printed a contract they'd drawn up. Mm -hmm. um, specifically defining the monetary value of the hours of work they were spending on this piece. Uh, and so at certain points you could visit the gallery and the artists would be in the space durationally constructing this piece. Um, the central sort of space of the gallery was taken over by um, what I've described as a kind of socially charged public library in the review, which had materials available concerning the intersection between work commodification of the time a person spends doing something and artistic production um, that Joseph Shaw was the woodworker who constructed the bookshelves yeah. and the study space which was available to come in and um, engage with those materials there was available a publication edited by Anthony Morgan which included photography work and essays by several people which was available when you arrived and you could sit in Joseph Shaw's space and uh, experience these ideas and come to terms with the concept behind the show and then there was this large uh, installation which looked like something from a um, a business fair or uh, yeah which which was the Jarsdale Solutions installation mm -hmm. and that was a physical presence within the gallery space which called your attention to the fact that outside of the gallery space Jarsdale Solutions had decided to suspend their operations uh, they are an artist collective who offer themselves as laborers in in various contexts so that before has meant grooming dogs or, or mm -hmm. putting on catering services in events. They offer themselves up as artists and labourers as a, as a viable workforce. Right. Um, their response to the brief on this exhibition was to look at their own labour practices and the practices within the exhibition in terms of equality 
um, had they brought, um, was their workforce representative of different minorities or not? Mm. Um, so it was a kind of self-reflexive experience. Within the gallery space, that meant that you looked at this stall, unpeopled stall with a screen which reminded you that Jars Dell Solutions had suspended all of their operations for the current duration of this exhibition. Yeah, in your um, in your review, you, you said about that work that it felt as though something is being withheld. What did you... Uh, that was kind of influenced by an experience I had when I was in the space talking to Lucas right. about the exhibition, um, where a local resident of Gateshead walked in and um, was a little bit unsure about what he was supposed to be experiencing within mm. the space. Um, there was no work hung on the walls, for example. There wasn't what you'd expect walking into a gallery space. You weren't presented with the same kind of visual experiences that you might expect. And I think that this was actually one of the greatest strengths of the exhibition um, conceptually. Um, and it's an ongoing thing. Like you said, it's part of a series. And yeah. this will be communicated in various ways across the uh, duration of the series, I'm sure. Um, I think that what it was getting at, which I thought was very powerfully communicated actually, is that there's been a disconnect, I think, in the 21st century between the artistic object, which has been very potently commodified. The art market, you have split canvases by Lucio Fontana, sculptures by Jeff Koons selling for tens, hundreds of millions. Mm. Uh, but the the occupation or the labour of the artist is seen as extra to um, the capitalist ideas of what of what valuable time spent is if you see what yeah. I mean. So the exhibition very consciously tried to call attention to the fact that our current systems of value don't value time spent by artists but they do value the artistic object um, in a disproportionate sense so the exhibition quite deliberately had very little in way of object there right. were no canvases, there were no sculptures within the space and I think that was a, a, a great strength of it. The the concern I had with the Jarsdale Solutions installation was that the way it was presented meant that visitors to the exhibition weren't given a lot of immediate right. um, tangible work with which to engage. Mm. And so appreciation of what the exhibition was trying to achieve relied on quite a lot of uh, leisure time to, to read, basically. Yeah. And it was, it was quite strange to me that the uh, work um, concerning labour and the value of time spent mm. would seem to lean so hard on their visitors having enough time to read dense text, come to terms with, um, like, uh, yeah, I guess, yeah, I was, conceptual artistic approaches. Yeah, and also having that, maybe having that sort of access to information already or having an, an education that would allow you to understand certain themes explored within it? Or I, think it was quite, I think it was quite open-ended. Okay. It, it, offered, it offered those things. And right. so what it offered was a chance for people who might not have had that experience right, to come to good, terms yeah. with those things, which was fantastic and, again, mm. one of its great strengths. But... Um, like I say, strangely, for a, for an exhibition that called real attention to the minute by minute. So, for example, Sean and Samuel were in the space performing yeah. labour, and that was that was what they were trying to call your attention to. Mm -hmm. Is this monetarily valuable? Right. Is the, is the process of bringing something into being the time spent by a human being? Is that what's valuable, or is is it just divorced from that the, the the produce? It was weird that 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 calling attention to the value or not of human labour would necessarily include you having enough time to to sit in a research space and read essays dense mm -hmm. essays which were obviously it, it was incredible this material was made available yeah i found it really rich and kind of i was like a kid in a sweet shop walking <laughs> in and thinking oh my god all these essays and books are here for me to sit and read but it, 
yeah, I did assume that the visitors would have a lot of time at their disposal, I think. Yeah, definitely. And I, that kind of connects. You mentioned um, about the positioning of um, the Newbridge project on the high street of Gateshead and the sort of gentrification mm-hmm. of the local area. Mm-hmm. Um, could you maybe talk about that, a little bit of the tension that that could cause? Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, the tension that I th- was worried about was um, that Newcastle and Gateshead in the northeast, their approaches to, or their, the idea that the northeast would have of what, what constitutes the working class mm-hmm. would be based on a conception of the very traditional working classes of the UK based on, on uh, labourers and unions, whereas the modern-day conception of the working class where it intersects with artistic practice is creatives who are undervalued for their, for their practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, a quite an illustrative anecdote for that would be in 2016 when Camden Sainsbury's put out this advert for an artist to redesign their, um, I think it was their cafeteria, and they said they weren't offering any money, and they said, here's an opportunity to expose yourself as an artist It's to the locals of Camden. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a satirical response from an artist who printed an advert saying, I'm an artist looking for a supermarket to offer their <laughs> services for free to expose that, you know? And so the creative young working classes of our age are um, expressing themselves in a particular way, which is very, very relevant and valid uh, and fascinating. But within the context of the Northeast, um, it's it's there's a tension there's a generational tension I think is what I was trying to call attention right. to um, and in Gates it's particularly apparent in this site um, as being below where there used to be a um, car park which was very brutalist uh, Bauhausian design car park called, uh, it was referred to locally as the Get Carter car park because it featured heavily in the in the film Get Carter which stars Michael Caine and it was this brutalist structure where a particular kind of design had intersected with labour in a way that had endeared itself to the local people quite well. It was knocked down. It's been uh, to make way for um, privately owned student housing. Mm-hmm. In Newcastle, there's a tension between the fact that it's becoming a much more multicultural place, and it, obviously that's fantastic, and people are coming in to study at Northumbria University and Newcastle University from all over the world uh, to be housed. Student housing's be, uh, thrown up in the centre of town all over the place. The tension is that it's starting to rob a kind of local character from previous generations who feel that their generation's deep. And where that intersects is, is what the working class means in Newcastle, whether it's people who have, uh, um, are descendants of people who worked in the mines, worked in iron and shipbuilding, or whether it means this new working class of creatives who are being undervalued for their very skilled work. And this exhibition positioned itself at a very tense moment, I think, historically and geographically between the two. Um, And I'm not sure that it's quite figured out where it stands just yet. Mm. You also use um, the example of William Morris's Art and Mm Labour lecture that he gave in Newcastle in 1884. and you say that holding this exhibition up to Morris's ideals of the pleasure of human life would perhaps miss the nuances of artistic operation at the contemporary grassroots level. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, could you maybe expand upon this in the way, and also the way you thought that that um, lecture by Morris is relevant to the workforce show today? Yeah, okay, so the reason I brought Morris in at the beginning and the end of the review is because um, in 1884 he gave this lecture in the, t- the Tyne Theatre, which still stands and is still a focal point of the cultural um, scene in Newcastle in a lot of ways. Um, he was speaking at a very particular time, and what he wanted to do was 
uh, reinvigorate working people by bringing a sense of artistic creation to the things they were building. He wanted builders to make Gothic architecture, and very much in the manner of John Ruskin in The Stones of Venice, because if there is a if there's a complex creative element to something that a worker is building, they will feel fulfilled and actualized by their work. And it, it now seems like an incredibly old-fashioned idea, but at the time it was pretty much the forefront of liberal thought. And the reason I thought that Morris was relevant was because he... He has this old-school kind of Marxist-socialist view of what labour is and what art is in relation to that. He sees art as this romantic recollection in tranquility thing, um, hangover from the romantic poets, and he wants to put that back into the everyday experience of common people. And it's a very noble cause. And I think that there is some ways in which those ideas are, are continually relevant in the northeast in a way that... Um, this exhibition might just miss. It's a very, it's a very complex idea of what labour is, what what the workforce exhibition is trying to figure out, I guess. Um, and sorry, what was the what was the bit that you picked up from the review? Oh, you said um, I think it's towards the end. You mm -hmm. said holding this exhibition up to Morris's ideals of the pleasure of human life would perhaps miss the nuances of artistic operation at the contemporary sure. grassroots level. Sure, okay. Well, I guess what I mean there is that since Morris um, just putting art into this pleasurable zone mm. as opposed to labour has become a little bit dated. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you obviously get um, post-Marxist theorists from Bart to Baudrillard saying that... Um, products are signs of a certain status rather than just because they're useful and so there's prestige in both directions that isn't necessarily linked to the thing to the thing itself so Morris deciding that if a thing is useful it should also be artistic and beautiful starts to sort of separate a little bit because art divorces itself from functionality mm. even functional things divorce themselves from functionality if you see what I mean to try and so like a Rolls-Royce car might not be the best engineered car, but it has a particular sign and it symbolizes a particular status. Yeah. So both labor and art divorce themselves from this idea of functionality that Morris is really wrapped up in. So judging this exhibition on Morris's terms would would miss some of the nuances that have happened since then. Um, but I, what I wanted to do was hold it up to those by um, to show that perhaps it's a little bit divorced from local feeling and local thought right. on the matter, perhaps. No, yeah. Um, I think we'll move on to yeah, Adam. Sure. So, Adam, hi. Thanks for coming. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so, why don't we start by you giving us a bit of a description of Ray and Liz, um, Richard Billingham's new film um, that came out last year. Sure. Uh, so, it's a feature-length film. Mm -hmm. It's um, shot on 16mm. And uh, it tracks three episodes, really, uh, from Richard Billingham's memory of his family upbringing and his life in the West Midlands. Um, and those three episodes span about 30 years between them. The first is from around... Actually, in the film, it's not really clear exactly when these episodes occur, but I think the first one is probably around 1980 mm -hmm. and features... Uh, well, it's an episode where Ray's brother, Lawrence, or Lol, is asked to take care of Jason, who's Richard's younger brother. 
um, while Liz and uh, Ray go out shopping. And there's a lodger called Will who arrives and uh, essentially pressures Lol into um, drinking a lot to the point where he's completely incapacitated. And then uh, Will sort of frames him um, for sort of um, not taking care of Jason, essentially, and covers the child in boot polish and gives the kid a knife. Um, And then uh, Liz comes back and attacks him with a shoe and... um, punches him in the face and the whole scene is is uh grotesque essentially um the second episode is about 10 years later i think and takes place around the time when jason is taken away into foster care um and that's over the course of a few days um and at that point essentially jason goes out for the evening He's look. I think he's probably about nine. Uh, he goes out for the evening to a sort of friend's bonfire, and mm-hmm. um, when he tries to come back, it's late, and he gets scared essentially and sleeps in a shed in a garden, in the garden of his friends, and um, he gets found in the morning by his friend's family, who actually take care of him, and um, eventually social services get involved mm-hmm. and uh, go into the house and take. Jason away uh, and the third sort of episode and actually the third episode is introduced at the very beginning of the film in the middle of the film between the other two episodes and at the very end of the film and it, it follows um, Ray probably about 15-20 years later than the second episode so maybe something in like the late noughties that, that kind of period and it essentially follows his life living in a single room which is the bedroom of the flat mm-hmm. um, uh, that Richard grew up in and uh, at this point Ray doesn't really seem to eat he drinks homebrew that a neighbour brings him Um, and his entire existence is based in that one room and occasionally he sees Liz again who's since uh, left him and occasionally comes back to essentially um, lean on him for his benefits Mm. and um, that's how the film begins and mm. ends so the film um i mean richard billingham's raise a laugh photo book is very famous and obviously is yeah. referenced throughout the film <clears throat> um but the modes are slightly different because the photo book is documentary photographs whereas this is sort of a reenactment um could you maybe talk about like the differences between the two? Um, you also mentioned the aesthetic differences. If you could maybe unpack those yeah. a little bit. Yeah, well, um, Raise a Laugh was Richard Billingham's sort of breakthrough. It was published in 1996. Mm. Um, and I mean, in terms, yeah, you're right. So in terms of content, it's obviously, um, you know, there are snapshots from his his day-to-day existence mm. growing up with his family. Um, and interestingly, weren't really initially um, intended to be um, works in themselves. They were sort of studies for paint paintings that he wanted to make while he was studying at, um, in Sunderland as a student for his BA. And uh, so, and they feel that you know they feel that way. They feel they feel um, loose snapshots, um, full of energy. 
uh, and also, I mean, I think this is part of the discomfort of them as well, is that they feel as if they're they're sort of taken uh, on unsuspecting family victims. You know, they don't. Yeah. It's not always entirely clear if uh, the family are really in on this um, act of uh, photography that that Richard Billingham is taking part in, but. He steers away from that for the film, mm. and um, in terms of the structure and the content, first of all, the you know they're very uh, the scenes that he chooses the episodes are very focused, very slow, very detailed, mm. and they're based around very small episodes in his life, but they're expanded to the point where you really get to grips with the um, interpersonal dynamics and the dynamics of care and responsibility, perhaps or and neglect in the family. So um, in terms of the approach, that's entirely different. And in terms of the aesthetic, yeah, you're right. So it's, it's, it's on 16 millimeter, so, um, and it's in four by three mm. ratio, which I think, you know, places it of that time and in, in that era. Um, uh, and also, to a certain extent, I think adds a lot to the detail, the clarity and the sort of textures of the of the film you know there's a lot of interiors uh, in the film it's a lot of his inter- inter- like the interior mm. domestic environment with like fabrics and wood and all these pictures on the walls that his and these objects that his mum seemed to collect um and i think the film the 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 choice of of the uh, material the 16 millimeter does a lot to um serve that that mm. purpose it does a lot of credit to that that sort of material um yeah, but I think wisely it, cho- it chooses to to steer clear of of exactly replicating the, the feeling and sensation of Razor Laugh. I mean, it's it's sort of yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, those photographs are sort of they're like the anti-family Christmas album. You know, they're very unflattering and sort of confessional. Um, and I think he even described them as carnivalesque. Yeah. So, do you think? Um, do you think that by going back to well going back to these moments in his lived personal history do you think that there's like an element a more of an element of nostalgia around his family home or is he trying to um give these characters are pretty well known is he trying or recognized i should say is he trying to maybe give more of a context of like the situation in which his family were living in the 80s um because they i don't did you mention that he his father was made redundant right so so over the film he's like sort of falling further into a depression that's kind of implied and the alcoholism is sort of of an after effect of that yeah, I think, I mean, you see Ray sort of decline from being mm. um, functional to increasingly dysfunctional, especially in the later stages when, yeah, he is essentially surviving alone, uh, entirely reclusive and um, dependent on alcohol. Um, I mean, the, the point that you made just before that is an interesting one. I mean, what exactly does uh, is the purpose of the, the this kind of reenactment? What does it serve? And I think it's... You know, I think it's a very personal uh, film for him. I mean, mm-hmm. he tries to stick very, um, very closely to his uh, remembered experience, mm. which obviously is a standard that no one else can 
be aware of really but it's, it seems very important to him that it, it that all the interiors are ag- exactly as imagined that all the dialogue that the way that Ray and Liz speak is exactly as uh, as he remembers and he had some recordings that he played to the cast for example that that they were supposed to you know take on board and imitate um so for him I mean I, I don't I get the impression that it's a very, you know a very personal um project um and exactly why go back to it I don't know I mean when I first heard that he was doing it I found it kind of a bizarre uh, activity mm. <laughs> like what, what is the purpose of this re- return to yeah. to this this work because he's he's moved you know there are moments where he he continues the project in a way yeah uh, there was that fish tank that yes there was on. a film mm. um, for the BBC uh, 98 Eight, yeah. yeah which was again a sort of hour long documentary that actually was commissioned by Art Angel and um Adam Curtis actually helped helped him with oh, really? that. I didn't know that. And um, yeah, and obviously you know, and the book was sort of the the starting point, but then the photographs got kind of were taken on by Saatchi and and exhibited yeah. in Sensation. Um, obviously, fine art prints there on aluminium uh, mounted panels, and then he sort of I think he he moved on to other things. You know, he started to, and there are elements of this that also come back in, in the film. But he moved on to. For, taking photographs in zoos and landscape photographs um, were part of, a major part of his output after that. Um, and then it seems that he sort of worked his way back towards towards these uh, this subject matter and whether he felt that he had unfinished business there or I get the impression that he probably wanted to give a little bit more context to some of the uh, snapshots that have come to define that period of his life probably. Right. Um, and really flesh them out, try to understand some of the, or try to explain and and describe some of the dynamics uh, that are involved. Do you think that humour is uh, plays a role within the film, and how do you think it sort of sits alongside the darker themes that exist, such as, um, I mean, the abuse that uh, you mentioned, Liz, um, sort of enacts on Lol, or their sort of abandonment of their their son but at the same time there's this sense that they feel like or not they feel like they have been abandoned sort of by wider society under living under a sort of thatcher government yeah maybe would it be interesting to talk a bit about humor within the context of yeah it's yeah i think it sits uncomfortably yeah. generally in the film it's um because there are definitely elements of humor and mm. but i think it all always feels inappropriate to actually laugh at them right okay in a way it's it's uncomfortable um and i think you know and and, and to me that's actually uh you know that's actually fairly well crafted throughout the film i mm. think um you know it's a different kind of discomfort at times to say raise a laugh or, or some of the some, you know his those photographs but uh discomfort is still a strong part of it and i think the humor actually adds a lot to the discomfort rather than yeah. providing any relief from it right um i don't think i think there are occasionally moments which are sort of absurd and uh overly grotesque um i mean you have sort of uh, bits where lol vomits on the floor and the dog comes and licks it up or um while you know the comedy is always tragic and and um and when and when uh Jason is actually missing. Um, there's this really bizarre scene, which kind of is totally really surreal. Where he, the, the Ray and Liz are out um, 
out in the park pushing their a pram which has the pet rabbit in it um sort of bundled up like a baby and and um Jason and they walk stumble across Jason in the park who they haven't seen for days and sort of shout that the police are looking for him and then sort of walk on so these things kind of ne- they never really uh I mean when I went to see it people were sort of giggling but I think the humor adds to the misery of it in mm. a way. Mm. yeah Yeah, I, it's interesting. He used um, Richard Billingham included Deirdre Kelly, who um, yeah. is famously is famously White D from Benefit Street, that documentary series. Channel yeah. Four, I think it was, and came out in two thousand fourteen. Yeah, and I know I've seen interviews where he talks about how when he saw videos of her, he just instantly thought of her, his mother, and how they sounded the same. But do you think there's a particular like? Is there something else that's kind of why he would use her within the context of that film and how it maybe brings it into relevance of like um, societal issues that exist today? Yeah, I think I think yeah, I think exactly that's that's I mean, he does say that he does say that, you know, she exactly is reminded him of of Liz. Mm -hmm. But I think, yeah, definitely casting her um, as the older Liz. why she so she plays Liz when Ray is living essentially by himself, uh, the later Ray and the later Liz. Um, and yeah, and I think you know, and casting her does sort of draw it back slightly into the sense of this being a current documentary, sort of like mm. the fact that you know, Benefit Street is obviously, um, completely different, um, sort of genre in a way, but it is lived experience as it as it exists now today and i think casting her in that does bring the film a little bit more into the present era or at least suggest or nod to the fact that those issues that maybe you know did plague society for certain demographics of people in in the 80s uh and continue to a certain degree, I think you know he's he's quite wary of of making it too explicit at any point. I think in his discussions around the film, um, and he definitely you know he explicitly states that that wasn't an intention of the film, right? That this was you know that it, a lot of it really was the kind of personal exploration. Um, but I think without a doubt, you know that doesn't happen without there being some uh, allusions to a little bit. Mm. A little bit of the present time as well. Yeah. Do you think that the film has like a because all of I mean all the pictures in Razor Laugh are so they seem so active even though they're static and do do you mm. think there's a slowing down of pace um, within the the way the narrative unfolds or the, just the general filming of it? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's you get the impression from Razor Laugh. I think that these are you know fragments of excise from larger narratives mm. that you don't really have access to that's part of the i mean one of the intriguing aspects of the film of the book i think um and the film really expands those into just be, into being very slow calculated uh takes that are forensic in detail and the shots um are long there are pauses long silences um sparse dialogue and 
yeah, I think he gives he gives the film room to expand around those 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 sort of moments, those episodes, and they're not always the same. They're not the same episodes necessarily from the book. Occasionally, they cross over, and you sort of, you know, Liz with the puzzle appears yeah, in the film, and it also is a you know a classic photograph from the from the book. Um, so they weave in and out, but the approach is entirely different. Yeah, and he does give this a long, a lot of room, a lot of time to expand. You know, I think especially around the episode with um, Jason as he's wandering around, wandering by himself out at night, um, going to the zoo, you know, these really long takes that actually add a lot to getting a sense of the characters in the film. I think you get, you get an idea of the characterization of the individuals in the family in in Razor Laugh, but I think, um, yeah, like you say, the space that they are offered gives a lot to them. And I think especially Jason, actually, in that episode, I mean, he's just, um, just in his face, it's brilliant. Uh, he's like, just the way he's, he's portrayed as being vulnerable and yeah. mischievous at all at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, is, yeah. is really, um, yeah, it's really well done. Yeah, it's, yeah, I mean, it's, it's such a sad um, story, like a personal history. Um, it's interesting that he uses, like, his family trauma as a source of subject matter but um yeah i guess producing it so far apart might give you kind of distance to yeah maybe i mean uh... <laughs> i mean yeah that's conjecture really i have to ask richard yeah but, um, but you know i think um I mean, what I think is particularly interesting about the film, well, to my mind, is 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 this the kind of family home that he grew up mm. in as being this kind of ethical sort of microclimate that you know is very individual to his upbringing, but also exists in every other person's family. You know, um, there are these very private sort of standards that are, operate within their family, and um, and those you know those don't really become legal issues at any point but they become uh private sort of internal moral moral issues within the family and then they only really become relevant to the public when or to to greater society when jason sleeps in this shed there's like one episode where everything that has built up to that point all the other situations that richard and jason have lived through all of those become kind of um only really crystallizing this moment when Jason sleeps in the shed and the social worker comes and takes him away and says, we can't have Jason, children Jason's age sleeping rough. So there's kind of this, um, those standards are only really found wanting at this one moment when it erupts in public mm. and this other family finds him, this middle-class family finds him, takes right. him in, cares for him. And then social services get involved and take him away. And... Richard sort of asked the social worker, can I go as well? You know, can I can I leave the family? And the social worker says, no, you're almost an adult. Right. You just have to make it through a little bit longer and and you can also kind of escape. Mm. Um, so they're enclosed in this, in this strange environment yeah. where the standards are different and odd, but perhaps are also different in, other, in each family that you come across, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> I think we have about five minutes left. Does anyone have any comments or questions on any of the conversations we've had tonight? 
No? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I think, thank you all for coming to speak with me. I think it's, uh, I think one of you asked if there was a, a set theme of um, tonight's radio show, but I think there were definitely like um, overlapping mm-hmm. sort of issues that have come about in, you know, sort of contemporary forms of labour and how we understand that. Um oppression under capitalism groups of people that are marginalized within society which we could maybe yeah see in ray and liz and also obviously in um discussion of sex workers rights and yeah the impact of austerity cuts to funding and its consequences um but yeah i think that's all we have time for tonight um i'd like to say a huge thank you to lauren holton adam herbman oh Oh, we've still got four minutes left. So, <laughs> sorry about maybe, that. Maybe I have, a, I have a question about the exhibition at Gateshead, which maybe you Please, might yeah, be able to answer really, really quickly. Um, so it seemed like really evident that the work was trying to think, yeah, less interested in the sort of the art object and wanting to think through the sort of process and sort of financial remuneration sure. associated with that. Um was in the exhibition it revealed the actual fee or um, financial sort of recuperation that the artists that were participating in, <coughs> was that actually revealed? Because there have been a series of exhibitions that have taken place and there's also obviously people like White Cube who are making sort of visible the sort of the fee that they are given sure. in exchange for their artistic labour. It might be a very quick, simple question, well, it's not. Or did you <laughs> think it was important? Was it, did it feel like it was important to reveal that information? Uh, luckily, it's a relatively simple question in one case. Um, the work that I've mentioned where Samuel, Barry and Sean Hutchings were, were creating this um, fence, this installation in the corner, and the artists were actually involved in making it in the space. Yeah, the, the contract I've mentioned, which was up on the wall, did detail exactly how their funding was being eked out hour by hour. So they had valued their own labour at a certain price. And it was detailed on the wall for people who visited to to reveal. Yeah. So in that one case, it absolutely was. Yeah. To answer your question, I guess I had a question for you, sort of, or to open up to the space since we've all talked about work. Um, one thing I wanted to do in the review but didn't really have space to do was talk about the um, the idea of the William Morris essay in contrast to a more current discussion of art and labour by uh, the German filmmaker and theorist Hito Sterl. Um, she riffs a lot on the word occupation. So labour has become occupation. Um, which is more time-based than commodity-based. So labour produces a thing, occupation occupies time. But she has a very interesting point about how that also has this military aspect, this violence, you occupy um, a colonised space or you occupy space in a military sense. I just wondered what either of you felt about um, the crossover between violence and work in particularly perhaps with sex workers, how that becomes activating or, or important in a certain way. Um, I suppose it's interesting that you bring up Hito Sturel because I suppose um, there's been that recent exhibition that she's um, that's either currently on or has recently closed at the Serpentine and I think she tried to um, enact a protest um, mm-hmm, at mm-hmm. the Sackler yeah. um, I would maybe question about the effectiveness of that sure. form of <laughs> protest um, but no there's yeah I mean the question of um, sort of protesters occupation i think is that what you said yeah yeah and and i suppose the yeah the problems that were associated with sort of film as a sort of visual representation of how do you visually um represent occup 
participation when you can't actually physically be present, mm-hmm. then also how that relates to protest. Process, protest is so integrated with being visible and being seen. Um, so, yeah. How do you protest when you're not able to do that? And that's what I feel like is so interested in the film and those questions that are, try- are, are approached via that film. Oh, I see. That's, that's, now it's all, all that we have time for. Um, thank you to Lauren Holton, Adam Herdman and Adam Hines-Green for joining me on tonight's show. Thank you. Um, and for all of their articles that are available to read in this month's issue of Art Monthly.